I titled the article, I've been social distancing with my dad for the last 31 years because this is exactly what it feels like. If the world wanted to know what it feels like to be a child of an incarcerated parent, this experience of social distancing is exactly what it feels like. And we haven't even done it a year, like a full year. It's a little over six months. It's like seven months, like right, seven, eight months now. It's not even a full year that we've experienced this. And we are stir crazy, right? We are like, oh my God, what are we going to do? When is this going to be over? You know, how are we handling this? And we're trying to cope, but it's depressing. It's, you know, just think about all the emotions that come with having to have been in this experience. We're isolated. We're not able to embrace our family members in the same way that we wanted to. This is exactly what it feels like to be a child of an incarcerated parent. As we all know too well, the COVID-19 pandemic has ushered in unprecedented isolation. Many of us are going weeks and months without seeing our loved ones in person, unaccompanied by harsh blue light piercing through the computer screen, without hugging them or hearing their voices free of cellular static and internet glitches. Yet there are millions of people around the country who were forced into social distancing long before the onset of the coronavirus pandemic. For the loved ones of incarcerated individuals, the separation and its ensuing emotional, physical, and financial anxiety is nothing new. To learn more about the experiences of those with loved ones behind bars, the hidden victims of the criminal justice system, we spoke with Ebony Underwood, a leading advocate for the children of incarcerated parents. Underwood is, herself, the daughter of an incarcerated father. In 2014, she began to share her story publicly, through film, television, and social media advocacy. Among her works, Underwood directed and produced the video, Open Plea to the President, and created the digital campaign, website, and documentary short, Hope for Father's Day, and hashtag Free Bill Underwood, centered around her family's experience. She has also published op-eds in various news outlets. With a growing and impressive resume, Underwood has also worked at the Osborne Association in New York via a Soros Justice Fellowship, spearheaded the digital campaign hashtag Love Letters, connecting children and their incarcerated parents on Mother's and Father's Day, received a proclamation from the City of New York for her inspiring advocacy work, and joined the board of directors at the Sentencing Project. In 2017, Underwood founded We Got Us Now, a nonprofit advocacy organization with the mission of amplifying the stories of and challenges faced by children and young adults with incarcerated parents. In this podcast, Underwood spoke about her intersecting identities of advocate, social entrepreneur, actionist, and child of an incarcerated parent. She also described the extensive impact of COVID-19, both personally as it has affected her experience as the child of a parent behind bars, but also more broadly as it has shaped the recent efforts of We Got Us Now. We hope this conversation prompts you to check out and support the incredible work of We Got Us Now and to give a loved one a call. And of course, we graciously thank Ebony for taking the time to join our podcast. I'm Nicolette Natali, welcoming you to this week's Works of Justice podcast as part of our ongoing series, Temperature Check, COVID-19 Behind Bars. Hi, Ebony. Thank you for joining us today. So you're very generous in sharing your story and how your dad's incarceration for a mandatory minimum drug sentence has taken away time you could have spent with your father. And I know you're still advocating for your father, who has spent over 30 years inside and is now 66, to be released, especially during the pandemic. I can't imagine how distressing the situation is for you and for the 2.7 million children, and that's just those under the age of 18 who have a parent who is incarcerated. I was hoping you could speak to how your personal experience inspired you to found the nonprofit We Got Us Now. Thank you so much, Nicolette. It was... um... (sighs) 
Yeah. So for the majority of my life, I did not talk about my dad being incarcerated. It was when the Obama administration decided that they wanted to reform the criminal justice system. And that literally was the light bulb for me to say, oh my gosh, this is a moment where I can actually say something about my dad because he had been fighting for so long to try to get, well, I won't say fighting, I'd like to use another word, I'll say he had been struggling for so long to find relief because he had been incarcerated. At that point, it was like 25 years he had been incarcerated. And my family, my siblings, it's four of us, we have been so burnt out by just trying to support him and getting him court cases and, you know, him being in the law library and then laws coming down. And, you know, because of the lack of retroactivity in the law, which means that, you know, new law would come out and it wouldn't apply to old cases. It only would apply to cases moving forward. And so it's just like he'd be stuck in legal limbo and the laws that would come out they literally, you know, dismantled his sentencing. And so you would think that, you know, he would be able to come home. Like so many moments, it's it's been an emotional rollercoaster for us. So I began to understand that the law is not sensical. The law is what the law says. It's not rational, it's not sensical, it's what the law says. And that's the way that it operates, which is really like a whole other language. And I just knew that at the the bottom line of it was that my father had been this really incredible dad and that I, you know, just watched him again from childhood into adulthood now. I've watched him just, you know, struggle with just trying to keep hope alive and trying to keep continuing to press on and seek relief. And when I heard the president, Obama, say at the time that he was, you know, wanting to reform the criminal justice system, I said, oh, my God, this this might be the moment. I think I have to say something. And so my father had a pro bono attorney. I reached out to them and was just telling them, like, listen, I, I want to say something like I want to create this film, like, but I need support. I don't have any funding. Like, what should I do? And in that week. She said, I'm on my way to the White House because she's based in D.C. She's like, I'm on my way to the White House because they have this initiative for children of incarcerated parents and I want to go. I just wish you had something like tangible that I could bring so that people could hear your story. And I said, what? You're going where? Okay, first of all, you're going to the White House. And then secondly, you're going for what reason? She said, yeah, they have this initiative for children of incarcerated parents. And I said, oh my goodness, I can't believe that there's a name for what I had been living. Like I'm an informed person. I had never heard this term before in my entire life. And that just kind of like, wow, it blew me away, number one, that this thing even existed and there was a name for what I had been living. And then the second part of it was like, the president is actually, there's an initiative for this? Oh, wow well, I really need to do what I'm telling you. Like, well, what do you need me to do? Like, what do you need? So I'm a writer. So I wrote, I wrote this long four page letter to him, to President Obama saying, you have two daughters. My father has two daughters, me and my sister, and we have two brothers. And I was just like, oh, he could relate. Like he could totally relate. That led to me building out this website called imprison.net that led to me creating a change.org petition, which now has a hundred thousand signatures for my dad. And just really beginning to tell our story. And um, in the process, you know, I was relentless. Like I just was like adamant about telling my story. You know, I wrote a couple of op-eds. I wrote for Vibe Magazine. I wrote for Huffington Post. I wrote for Mike. I wrote for Now The Appeal. Like I, you know, I just was writing because number one, it was cathartic. And then number two, I just was really trying to create as much awareness about my dad as possible. 
And then secondly, you know, it had just been so long. It had been so, so long. And so all that to say that I soon thereafter became a Soros Justice Fellow. And as a Soros Justice Fellow, I was hosted by the Osborne Association in New York for my fellowship. And so there I began to learn just about like all the data and research around what had been said about children of incarcerated parents. The Osborne Association is a state-based organization and my dad is in federal prison. And so when I started to realize like there was a segment of the population that I felt was missing out, like Osborne was great about creating awareness but the levels of awareness, I felt like people just don't understand it's not a monolithic issue. Like this is really different at different levels. And so, you know, learning about this and being able to, through my fellowship, travel across the country and meet and speak publicly at a ton of different spaces allowed me to be in Google and then to maybe be at a high school or maybe to be at a prison and meeting young people that have had parents that are incarcerated at all these levels. So it just made me say, there's a real need for this. It's like, you know, there's work that's being done, but it, it felt very fragmented. And so I just wanted to be able to create a space for children and young adults, because there is no magic button at 18 where all of a sudden I'm cured. I'm no longer like traumatized by this experience. As a matter of fact, as you become older and become an adult, you start to realize how much this experience has impacted your life, regardless of whether your parent is home or not. Like you start to realize the effects of having had a parent incarcerated and how much of it really impacts your life. And so that's why I decided to start We Got Us Now, because I just wanted to in a really strength-focused way, advocate for supporting children and young adults who have been impacted by this thing called mass incarceration in our country. Yeah, thank you so much for your answer. And I think working from your personal experience to create this organization is so powerful and really incredible. So we know pre-pandemic, it was already hard to be in contact with parents who are incarcerated due to factors as being in a prison far from where the family resides or for the exorbitant cost of telephone calls, email, or video conferencing. Can you speak to how the pandemic has made it additionally challenging to stay in touch with loved ones inside, and how We Got Us Now is advocating for easier pathways for communication? The pathways for communication have really been challenging with the pandemic. First of all, because of the fact that, number one, phone calls were scarce. Like my dad in particular, I'll I'll talk to you about my specific situation. I talked to my dad almost every day. And so when the pandemic hit, I hadn't spoken to him for at least a week, two weeks. Maybe it was two weeks. Yeah, I think it was like two weeks. We didn't talk because I think they just kind of like shut down everything. So he didn't have access to phone calls or anything. And what that has meant for me over the course of these three decades, anytime he's locked down, like to that degree, and I don't speak to him, that means that he has been transferred to another facility. Cause that's usually how it works. Like when you don't hear from him, that usually means that they have upped and transferred him and there's no pre-warning. It's just, he's gone and he's in some new facility. And so that's what I was thinking. I'm like, oh no, please. I hope he's in the Northeast. I would hope that they didn't move him anywhere. Like I didn't know what was happening. And so of course this is like traumatizing. It's just like, oh my God, no emails because I come to find out he was locked down. They had been locked down for 23 hours of the day and only out for an hour every other day to shower, to go to the commissary and to eventually make a phone call when we spoke to him. And so, of course, he can't mail us any letters, you know, because he's locked down. So communication, and that's at the federal level. 
was very challenged. At the state level, very similarly, people, you know, were not able to visit, you know, people were not notified. That's another thing. Like there were no notifications about where our parents were, how were they doing? There was just nothing in place. And so we got us now, we knew immediately, like once this thing became very serious, we just kind of decided that we were going to just come together. And I say we, because we got us now launched an actionist initiative. It's 10 actionists from all across the country. They're directly impacted daughters and sons who are advocates for criminal justice reform. And so basically our actionist community came together and, you know, taking cues from their respective cities and states and their communities within their respective cities and states. And like, you know, the people that they're in contact with that are also directly impacted, we decided to come up with an open letter and we wrote four demands around the fact that we knew that there would be no such thing as social distancing. We talked about not knowing that there would be the notification system, not being aware, you know, what was happening in our spaces. We talked about the exorbitant cost of keeping connected at the federal level. Let me just explain to you how this works. So at the federal level, my father has a phone list. So he gets a list of about 20 people that he can actually call. You have to have their address. How are you related? How do you know this person? If you aren't related, if they're a friend, how long have you known them? And then, you know, of course, this has to be vetted and then they, that list can exist. But he is allotted 300 minutes per month and every phone call is 15 minutes. It's maximum 15 minutes. So again, he has four kids and three grandchildren. And so like... <laughs> Wait, sorry, does he get 15 minutes to talk to each one of you? Like all together? Yeah, yeah, all together. Wow. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's 300 minutes per month and he can't call back to back. So if he does call in 15 minutes and he wants to call back, he has to wait 30 minutes to call back. Wow. And so most of the time I'm rushing, rushing, rushing off the phone with him because he's just like, I don't have minutes. I don't have a lot of minutes. And then, you know, I just want to say hi, see if you guys are okay, blah, 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 blah. Which is very frustrating for me personally. It's just very frustrating because just the loss of time that I have experienced in this situation is just... To me, it's devastating, actually. As I get yeah. older, I just realized the quality time that I just miss with my dad. And it just becomes really bothersome. And, you know, dealing with that is just, it's a lot to just really think about how much time has actually been missed between us. But yeah, so that's how it is at the federal level. At the state level and at jails, phone calls, they have to be paid for. And at the state level, I believe it's very similar to the federal level where you have commissary and then you use the phone. You know, when you do make phone calls, I think you can make them collect depending upon the state. Or there is very similar to the federal system where you are allotted a certain number of minutes per month or granted, right? But at jails and at the state level, because there are these telecommunication companies called Securus and Global Tech, these companies make billions of dollars annually, mm -hmm. like billions of dollars annually just off of families. And, you know, I feel like it's like the commoditization of our parents, because mm -hmm. in order for us to stay connected to our parents, we have to pay, like they have to pay or we have to pay. And usually it does come out of our pockets. You know, especially if you're a young adult and you have a parent that's been incarcerated. Yeah, it's usually coming out of your pocket. So very frustrating situation, very heartbreaking situation for children of incarcerated parents. The communication with COVID 
it just made it really, really, really challenging because money is not the same. You know, nobody's working. And now it becomes just more of a challenge to potentially just stay connected to your parent and afford to stay connected. Because if you don't have the money, how can you afford to stay connected? And remember, we're already a very marginalized population. And if a parent is taken out of the home, usually it's the parent that had the income that was taken out of the home, right? Or we're supporting the breadwinner of the family to some degree. And so a lot of times, more than often, you know, we're left in these really desolate situations. And so the economic instability that's created because of incarceration, this now pandemic adds another layer to that because of just the fact that it's just been really difficult for us to stay connected And so what We Got Us Now did is we put together a petition. It's a change.org forward slash protect our parents petition. And in that petition, there's four demands. And the first demand is to protect our parents behind bars, which is granting clemency for our elderly incarcerated parents and our sickly, because we know with the COVID-19 pandemic, those are the people that are most vulnerable to COVID. And then our second demand was what I was just talking about, the free communications, because what we learned during the pandemic was that many people, like these companies, these telecommunication companies, like from AT&T to Verizon to Comcast to T-Mobile, they were all playing like this really supportive role to people on the outside, people that were international, that may have had family members that were overseas or, you know, even here across the country. They were offering free data, offering free phone service. They were doing all this stuff to support families. And we were just like, well, hello, (laughs) can we get that too? Because when you are, again, at the federal level, I explained to you what that's like, right? So it's usually somebody on the outside or if my father has some income coming in that, you know, he's able to put money on his phone, but it's usually us. And so at the state level and at the jail level, it's secure. So people are actually calling so that their family members are putting money. With Securus, you have to put a $25 down payment to actually even begin the process of utilizing Securus. So it's $25 down. And then every time you want to like, you know, put money in it's, I forgot what they're called, but anytime you want to put money on the calls, then it costs, it costs every single time. So we were like, hello, can we get something to like, it's a pandemic. Can we get some kind of like support around being able to stay connected to our family members? We can't visit them. We can't see them. Like, can we get free phone calls? And so that's what we put forth, like free communication, because some people have iPads and other such things and like state facilities and even some federal facilities. And so we wanted to just ensure that our family members at the very least being able to be a lot of free phone calls. And so for us, communication has been very challenging, I would say. But now, since the pandemic, the federal system has implemented free phone calls inside federal facilities. The interesting part of that was that they were locked down for most of the summer. And so they would get out every other day and only get access to the phone on certain days. So even though my father was now able to make free phone calls, he didn't have really the time <laughs> to make a lot of phone calls. So it's like a catch 22. It's like, oh, okay, great. You give me free phone calls. But now he, he doesn't even have the time to really like make free phone calls. Mm-hmm. They also, I'll add this, they also added minutes. So he has 500 free minutes or he had 500 free minutes. I don't know if it's still in place at this moment, actually. It's October now. So I don't know if it's still in place, mm-hmm. but last month it was. So hopefully it still is. 
he hasn't asked me to put any money on his phone, so maybe it is. Yeah, I think it actually is. He still is in effect at the federal level. But I know at the state level, it's not. A lot of people have no idea about whether they can still visit. Prisons were opening up. Now they shut back down. So some children with back to school coming into play, they didn't even get to see their parents. It's just been a lot. It's just been a lot. Mm-hmm. I hope I answered your question. You did. I think also something I was wondering was when you were talking about like your dad getting transferred, like how are you actually able to contact your dad if you want to make a phone call and he gets transferred and you don't know? Okay, so let me explain to you. I can't call him ever. I've never been able to call him. When he is transferred, this is usually how it goes. You call the prison where he is or where he was and find out, like after a couple of days, what we've learned is that this, like we have a process. If we don't hear from him like two, three, four days, we'll call the prison to make sure that they're locked down. So call the prison to find out if there was a lockdown or call the prison to find out if he's okay. Like, you know, did anything happen to him or, you know, has he been moved? So those are the three questions. It's not easy to reach the prisons. A lot of times they don't answer. So, you know, sometimes we're waiting a couple of days until we get through. But in the past, when he has been moved, you know, they'll answer the phone. They say, is this call in reference to an inmate? You say yes, they'll ask for the inmate's name, you give them the incarcerated individual's name, and they'll go back and find out what's going on and and who we are. Of course, they have to find out who I am. And so, you know, I'll say this is his daughter, I'm calling whatever to find out, is he okay? Is he still there? He's still here. Um, We're locked down. Oh, okay. That's good. Is he okay? He's okay. And then, you know, just as long as I know he's there. But that's been moments where he's actually been moved. No, he's been transferred. Or they say they can't tell me anything. And then I'm like, oh no. Like, so I don't know if he's sick. I don't know if he's okay. And I don't know if he's been moved. So I just kind of got to wait to hear from him. But just the lack of information, like there is no notification system. That's one of our four demands too, is like, can we have some sort of notification? Because people were thinking during the pandemic that they could still go visit. And just to give you some context, when you visit, These spaces are hours away. Unless your parent is like in a a local jail, this is hours away. Here in New York, the closest facility for some of these spaces is like, you know, some are very close. There's a facility actually in Brooklyn. But then there's facilities that are like all the way by Canada. Mm -hmm. You know, my father was in a federal facility that was like, (laughs) although it was in New York, it was like six hours away from the city. So, and that's one way. So that's a 12-hour day just driving. So we would have to leave at like 2, 3 a.m. in the morning just to get like a full visit, like a full day with him. We would have to leave like so early in the morning just to be able to have the opportunity to spend some quality time with him. So yeah, it's like, it's so challenging and people were doing it and then getting to the prison to find out that they were closed, they were locked down and not having any idea. And so it's great to be able to speak on these topics because you just asked a really important question. Like, you know, are you able to call him? No, never been able to call him. Never know. Just never know. You just never know. There's a lot of like nuances in this experience that I just feel like the average person has no idea. From the monetization of every phone call 
to even coming to visit and what that experience is like to have to, you know, eat food out of a vending machine. And the food is, my father says, it's like the, <laughs> he said, that's the best food in there, actually, the vending machine food, which to us, like to me and you would be like, what? Like, we probably wouldn't even eat that, especially about how good we eat out here. I don't know if you eat healthy, but I'm a healthy eater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that food is junk. It's like pizza and like fried wings. And then it's packaged, you know, so it's like gross, but or a bunch of junk food. And I, I can't eat that. So, you know, it's just a lot. It's just a lot of different types of things that we experience just to stay connected to our parents. And I feel like the system continuously profits off our pain through all sorts of ways. I mean, even an email cost, you know, like even for my dad to email me, that cost. So that goes against how much money he has in his account is usually $300 because you can only send $300 at a time. Even through Western Union, it's $9.99 to send it, but it's $300 a pop. So it's just like, it's so much money. It's so much money. This kind of leads me to like the question of the article that you wrote in Mike, which was, I've been socially distancing from my father for 31 years, because in it, you highlighted the words of Tiffany Brown, we got us now activists. Oh, actionist, I'm sorry. And she asked like, what if I was just laid off from my job and couldn't put money on my parents' commissionary account? How would they get access to soap and basic hygiene supplies during the global pandemic? And she was really highlighting what you're talking about in terms of like everything getting commoditized in terms of like trying to stay connected and how family members on the outside often have to support those on the inside and the added stress of doing the financial support during an economic recession due to the pandemic. So I was wondering how We Got Us Now is addressing these financial concerns of children trying to protect and care for their loved ones inside during a health and financial crisis. And also, if you wouldn't mind explaining what an actionist is. Yeah, thank you for that question. So, I mean, yeah, I mean, having the ability to be able to publish that article and to share Tiffany's words, right? Like to be able to share Tiffany. Tiffany's based in Michigan. She runs an organization called Developing Despite Distance and for children of incarcerated, for boys particularly with incarcerated parents. And her mom was incarcerated when she was younger. And so she absolutely knows what this is like. And so she is often, you know, met with these questions. And that was something that came up during the pandemic. Like, what do you do? You know, she has some young people that she works with and they were exactly in this situation. And so for all of us, we're all navigating this really challenging situation. Like we all are just on a regular basis. But, you know, like you said, I I titled the article, I've been social distancing with my dad for the last 31 years because this is exactly what it feels like. If the world wanted to know what it feels like to be a child of an incarcerated parent, this experience of social distancing is exactly what it feels like. And we haven't even done it a year, like a full year. It's a little over six months. It's like seven months, like right, seven, eight months now. It's not even a full year that we've experienced this and we are stir crazy, right? We are like, oh my God, what are we gonna do? When is this going to be over? You know, how are we handling this? And we're trying to cope, but it's depressing. It's, you know, just think about all the emotions that come with having to have been in this experience. We're isolated. We're not able to embrace our family members in the same way that we wanted to. This is exactly what it feels like to be a child of an incarcerated parent. And so I feel like Tiffany added a whole other layer of the financial displacement this puts on daughters and sons that have been impacted by parental incarceration, especially if you are elder 
or you know young adults that are caring for your parents that have been incarcerated or that are incarcerated like the financial stress that has now been put on us already just given the pandemic now add the layer of now having a parent that's incarcerated the emotional stress of not knowing if they're okay day to day and the the scariness about covid looming inside the physical stress of not being able to give them a kiss or a hug because you just miss them and you want to see them. And like, I haven't seen my father for, gosh, I haven't seen him since February. That was the last time I saw him. And it's October. Like it's about to be November. Like literally I have not seen him. I miss him a lot. Like I visit him regularly at least once a month. So the emotional and then the physical and now the economic stress of not being able to, you know, for me, fortunately, I'm able to send him anything that he needs. But for those of us who don't, like for those of us who have to make a choice, like, do I send my parent this this week or do I go and allot that money from our groceries? Like, how are we sparsing out this money? The stimulus check hasn't come back in. Like, it is very much so, yeah, both a health and financial crisis for us on so many different levels. And again, you know, some of the ways in which we try to address these financial concerns of children of incarcerated parents are doing things like this, like having this conversation with you today is an opportunity for me to share, you know, for the state of Michigan. So maybe that they know that this is what's happening for some young people that are in Michigan or, you know, wherever you are, you know, think about is, is criminal justice reform on your ballot? Are your policymakers ensuring that they're protecting these families that are being harmed unjustly? You know, last night they talked about that even in a debate. Like, you know, some of these kids that are displaced because of separation at the borders. We could wholeheartedly agree that. I mean, children of incarcerated parents have been going on for decades. Like I said, a whole generation. And a generation is equivalent to 30 years. I've been dealing with this for the last 32 years, a whole generation. You know what I'm saying? We don't want another generation of mass incarceration. That's why it's so important to share our stories and be able to connect with people so that they understand a glimpse of what we are experiencing on a day-to-day basis. And mind you, I was a kid when this happened to me, right? I was a kid when I was forced into social distancing. I've been dealing with this for years, this thing of social distancing. I've been dealing with this for years. So yeah, I've just had to learn how to cope and, you know, and grin and bear it. And, you know, We Got Us Now came about because I realized that people actually do care. For a lot of my life, I felt like people did not care. And, you know, I kind of just held it close to my chest and really did not realize how harmed I was in it. And so to answer your second question, what is an actionist? I always knew that I did not want to do this work alone. I always knew that I wanted to build community. I was mindful of really wanting to build out a community because I felt like what I was sharing with you, like, the, you know, children of incarcerated parents, it's not a monolithic issue. It, it, it works in a lot of different ways. And so I wanted to be able to ensure that children of incarcerated parents had the support because that was the thing that I started to discover in all of my research that, you know, people had no idea that this actually even existed and that there was this invisible population of children at all levels. Like, again, most people think of it, they kind of clump us all together and it's not that. Like, I I wanted people to understand that it was bigger than that. So We Got Us Now is the first of its kind. It's a national nonprofit, nonpartisan organization. 
is built by, led by, and about children and young adults with incarcerated parents. And our actionists, well, we have two really, really succinct missions, right? Our mission is simple. It's like, we really just want to do action and advocacy. And beginning this organization, most of the work that we were doing is our advocacy work, which is creating content to tell our stories. But beyond telling our stories, what I also wanted to do was, you know, we can tell our stories all day. Like, there are definitely organizations that support young people telling their stories, and that's great. But we wanted to go a step beyond that because we felt like what I had discovered in all the research that I had done was that there were like two distinct groups. There were children that were very much wanting to tell their stories. But then there was also a group that was just like, you know, we just support the work that you do. We don't really want to talk about this. Like, this is not something I want to talk about. So for those that wanted to advocate and wanted to do more and tell their stories and even go beyond telling their stories, we decided that we wanted to create this, what we are calling is Actionist Leadership Program. And the Actionist Leadership Program basically was a way for our community members who wanted to take action and help to, you know, support policies that were out there. There's so many groups, right? Like, you know, even the group that you come from, like there's so many groups that are doing incredible work around criminal justice reform. And we know that storytelling is a powerful tool. And so beyond storytelling, what we began to discover is that we need to share some of just like these intricate details about our experience that people may not be privy to. Like how can we help to actively support the reform work that's being done, right? And so what we did was we identified young people from all across the country. And basically what we did is we developed them into leading subject matter experts. So what we do is we develop and we train them with all sorts of information around the criminal legal system, because you could be impacted and have been dealing with this stuff but have no idea about what's happening on the policy side of things. Like if you took some action and became an actionist, you may not have to deal with this. We have four founding principles that we got us now. It's to engage, educate, elevate, and empower our young people. And so we just felt like, listen, for those of us that want to actually do those things, we are going to help to support you in doing that by equipping you with the tools and the information so that you can become this subject matter expert because you already come to the table as an expert through this experience, but now we're going to make you a subject matter expert that is equipped to speak about these issues and understand how you can support our very specific policy priorities, which are to keep families connected, which are to create fair sentencing because we definitely over-incarcerate in the United States and then ultimately to end mass incarceration. And that starts with like the data. We know that, you know, we are the great mass incarcerator of the world, the United States is, and that 2.3 million people are incarcerated in our country. What we found out is that 50% of that population are parents. And so we were just like, listen, is that really true? And even, you know, in this conversation, 2.7 million children under the age of 18 at any given point in time are experiencing that. We did more research and found that that, that is greater than the states of Maine and New Hampshire combined 2.7 million people. So 2.7 million children, that's bigger than the states of Maine and New Hampshire together. Like to me, that blew me away. But the epidemic is that over 10 million children over this generation of mass incarceration have been impacted by parental incarceration. And so I always knew I could never do this alone. Like I need to find these young people 
And we, we've only been in existence since 2017, but it literally took me this time to like really identify because we're a historically invisible population. Children mm -hmm. of incarcerated parents don't talk. They don't share. They don't share their stories. Only, you know, if they feel like they're in a safe space. So we felt like, listen, we have to create these safe spaces in order for them to know that they're in community, that they're not alone, that you can share, that, you know, we are here for you and we are advocating for you. And even if you don't want to talk, we respect that as well, right? So, but there are those of us that do want to talk. And so we're going to advocate and make sure that we're supporting your goals and your needs. And, you know, again, we're a national organization. So I said, how do I do that best? Let me find the young people in these cities and states that are doing the work and amplify them and then empower them and equip them with the tools to do it in their respective cities and states. And so that's what an actionist is. We take action beyond activism. We took it a step further and decided that we wanted to be able to take action. That's awesome. I love that so much. Before our interview ends, is there anything else like you'd like to add? My call to action today would be if everybody could please sign our petition. You know, we really took a lot of time in coming up with this petition and it outlines our four demands to protect our parents behind bars since COVID has hit. And the petition is change.org forward slash protect our parents. The other ask that I would do is to be able to please, you know, join our movement. You know, you can learn more about We Got Us Now by going to wegotusnow.org. And you can always donate. You can go to our page to donate or you could buy a hoodie. We have some really cool hoodies mm -hmm. and t-shirts. We have a cool logo, a brand. And so all those proceeds go directly to supporting the work of We Got Us Now. Ultimately, Nicolette, I just want to say thank you so much for this interview. I'm excited to be on Temperature Check. So thank you. <laughs> yeah, no, it was great interviewing. And thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me today. Absolutely, absolutely, no problem. Hi, I'm Frances Cohan, and I'm PEN America's Prison and Justice Writing Program Gap Year Fellow. This podcast episode was researched, hosted, and produced by Nicolette Natali, and the episode's introduction was researched and written by myself, with support from Program Director Kate Meisner. Thank you for listening. If inspired, we invite you to check out Part 2 of this episode, an interview with Danasia Payne, about mothering while incarcerated, and further learn and advocate by reading our full temperature check issue 10, Family Through the Walls, at pen.org slash works of justice.